delusional optimism that it's probably important for, for any sort of advancement. Delusional optimism. Are you a victim? I was way too excited about it. I just loved it so much that I figured all those other things, well, they they could wait and I'm just going to go for it and it'll all work out fine. Sound familiar? Probably does. We've all had something like this. A passion. It captivates us and takes control of our thoughts for every second of every day. You love it so much that you'll do anything just to get a little deeper. The problem is in climbing that can get you killed. There were so many cases where I probably should have died in the first couple of years of climbing. Um, And it was really just because I was was way too excited. Meister fans, hello. Before we get to the show, just a quick update on the podcast. We're going to be releasing new episodes on Wednesday. Now, normally we release new episodes on Tuesday and Thursday, so we're just going to switch up the schedule a little bit. We've got a lot of other really exciting things going on. So just for the rest of the summer, we're switching it up to one day a week. If you are just heartbroken by this, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, But if you're not devastated, go back through our backlog. We've got so many good episodes, and if you haven't listened to every single one of them, well, you're missing something. That should be it for the updates. Now on to the show. All right, everyone. Hello and welcome. It's another episode. On the other end, we have Kelly Cordes. Hello, Kelly. Hey, Ben. You're listening to Mountain Meister. If you don't know Kelly Cordes, He's a climber, writer, and a margarita specialist. Yes. For the climbing portion, he's established first ascents essentially all over the world in alpine style, Alaska, uh, Pakistan, Peru. For the writing, uh, many times published in Alpinist, uh, Rock and Ice. He's also the author of The Tower, a chronicle of climbing and controversy on Cerro Torre. And for margaritas, we'll talk about that a little later. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. How's the day thus far, Kelly? Excellent. I was going to get up and uh, run up into the mountains and do some things, but uh, I just couldn't get out of bed on time. I was too tired. I've been climbing a lot lately. Oh, yeah? And, uh, <laughs> it's hard to take rest days sometimes, but um, today's a rest day. Today's yes. a rest day. Good. Yes. Do you ever feel guilty about taking a rest day? Uh, a little bit, um, but... It's really hard when I'm tired and I'm sleeping. I'm so lazy. I love to sleep in, which I know so- sounds odd for someone who likes to go alpine climbing. But uh, yeah, I was just too tired. And so I don't really feel too guilty about yeah. it. I don't know. I'll goof off on the internet for a while and that, that'll make up for it. I'll feel much <laughs> better about myself or not. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about it, and I do this at the beginning of each interview because I think it kind of dictates who you eventually become in some cases yes. is how you grew up where you grew up what you did when you grew up so i saw pennsylvania and i should say yeah. that given the type of people that we have on the show it's surprising how many have either grown up or done something in pennsylvania including me i told you before i'm from yeah. pittsburgh outside of pittsburgh yes. uh what's your deal where where in pa did you grow up yeah well i was born in washington state but um my parents moved to Pennsylvania because my dad is a professor. Uh, he, he got a job at Penn State University in State College, Pennsylvania, Happy Valley. Mm-hmm. And so from the 
I guess uh, I was like two when we moved there, and, and so that's the town I grew up in. You know, it's a college town, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a great place to grow up. And um, I, you know, it was kind of funny. I I never had any connection to the mountains while I was growing up. Uh, I guess I you know I was into like sports, I guess, which is kind of the thing that a lot of people are into there. Like I was a huge football fan of Penn State football oh, yeah. and my my big dream was to grow up and be a star football player for Penn State. <laughs> Except the thing is, dude, I was tiny. I mean, I'm still pretty small, but like in tenth uh, grade, I remember because that I went through like the two-a-day football drills without – they do these ones without pads, so no contact uh-huh. for like two weeks in like the sweltering heat of August. And then they're getting ready to give you your equipment. And uh, I was like daydreaming of – you know, this was in high school, you know, 10th grade. And I'm daydreaming of, you know, playing football. And this is my first step to be – to playing for Joe Paterno and Penn State football. And uh, they, they – but the the night before they gave out equipment, they called my mom and <clears throat> and like told her like, Mrs. Cordes, we're we're sorry. I mean, your your son has more heart than anybody out there. But but we we just can't issue him equipment. We're concerned for his safety. Uh, they very well saved my life. I mean, they have like in high school there they have like you know 230 pound linebackers i was four foot ten and i weighed 85 pounds wow <laughs> yes I, I was so small and that's, my mom that's came, like the size of a of a gymnast like an olympic <laughs> gymnast right <laughs> a female olympic female gymnast, gymnast. yes yeah. yeah yeah exactly man uh-huh. um when my mom came, I remember it still. She came into my bedroom and broke the news to me, and I just cried all night. I was just devastated. She she said it was one of the saddest moments of her life having to break that news to me. But uh, but yeah, no, it was a good thing. So that, um, well, that is that is sad. You came, it is. Came back that in was a big my way. Dream. <laughs> yeah, that 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 was what I wanted. It was my my dream. But um, it, in a sense. I never thought of it this way, but in a sense, maybe, maybe that kind of led me to climbing th- through a circuitous path. Which uh, I, I was more into a weight class sports. I, I wrestled when I was younger, but then I had an injury and uh, had to stop for several years. And then was had these football dreams, but um, instead of football, I I got into another weight class sport, uh, boxing, hmm. and I was a competitive boxer. Uh, through college and then um i you know after it i guess uh during high school one time my dad took us kids on a ski trip to colorado and and i thought it was really awesome and i i just loved it and i i used to really like to ski and so after high school i took a year off and um went out west and was a ski bum in Summit County, Colorado for a couple months in the winter, thought the mountains were great, and always figured that after college, because at that point I had already started boxing, and I was I really wanted to box at Penn State, which I did, and uh, but I had always had in the back of my mind that like I think maybe, maybe the mountains and may, maybe being out west is somehow hmm. sort of calling or, or a place that I want to be, and so... After after I graduated from college at Penn State, I 
applied to grad school basically just as a means to go out west. I just pulled out the map and, you know, looked for grad schools in the Rocky Mountains and ended up at the University of Montana in Missoula. Very cool. I, I didn't know that you boxed in college. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. Boxing seems so different than the climbing that you – are boxing mm-hmm. and climbing very different? At first, you would think that they are. Um, however, I I actually see a lot of similarities. Um, it's that the at least, especially with alpine climbing, because you've got this chaotic environment. It's not only up to you. In boxing, you you've also got an opponent mm-hmm. who's like looking to you know hit you. Um, Grant, I will say, I will give a brief plug for amateur boxing, which is that the rule structure and the scoring system and all that is set up much more to emphasize outscoring your opponent, and uh, which, granted, you, you do by, by punching them, mm-hmm. um, but, but it's, it's a lot less brutal than professional boxing. Um, I know it's a little bit hard to defend boxing, especially these days with all of the the head trauma research mm-hmm. that's coming out and uh but but I loved it. I saw it as a as a full contact chess match basically. And the big thing, the big connection that I've seen between alpine climbing and boxing is the mental intensity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard it said that the the most alone moment in sports is the is the walk to the ring in boxing. I've I've heard that boxing is very lonely. Um, it's very lonely. And, and I assume that solo alpine ascents are also very lonely. <laughs> I, I heard this from uh, I'm a big tennis player, and uh, I heard cool. this in Andre Agassi's book Open, um, uh-huh. and he compares uh, tennis and boxing. He says that tennis is a very really? lonely sport. Yeah. Because I mean, the ways are, the rules are designed. You can't really talk to anybody. You can kind of look up at your team during points, uh, right. but there's no uh, there's nobody on the sideline to help you. It's a very lonely sport. Ah, uh, that that's really cool, mm-hmm. and, and I can completely relate to that. You know that that walk to the ring. I mean, when you're training in boxing, yeah, you've got teammates and stuff and all that, but but you still know that when it's time to go to the ring. It's going to be you mm-hmm. and you alone. And that there's this moment where you're walking to the ring and, yeah, your teammates are on you and they're kind of trying to psych you up and pat you on the back and stuff. And But there's this moment where your your corner man walks up onto the, the ring apron, you know, and the ring is elevated and he puts his knee on the – there's four ropes usually and he puts his – his knee on the second from bottom rope and he lifts the third from bottom rope with his hands to create this opening for you to walk through the ring. And you walk up those three steps and kind of step, step through the ropes, dip under and into the ring and your corner man leaves. And it's like you and the other guy, it's like, Oh boy. All right, here we go. Wow. And and it, and boxing is incredibly technical. Your average, at least to do it right. I mean, you, yeah, you can get any any drunk guy from a bar to, that that thinks he can fight or thinks he can box. But it's incredibly technical to go in against another highly skilled, highly trained opponent who's you know trying to dodge your, your blows and and likewise. And it's very strategic and and it has consequences. And in those regards, it's similar to alpine climbing. Yeah. 
It's strategic. It has consequences. And it's really intense. Uh, approaching a big alpine route is so similar to me to the ring walk. Um, you, you leave your tent. You know, you're, you're usually doing it in the dark in the early morning hours, which is actually a great time to approach an alpine route because otherwise it's so freaking scary, man. Like, you know, you've got this monster looming above you and it's completely uncaring. It, it, you are nothing. You are absolutely nothing. And you're walking up there and you're hoping that you're going to be good enough, brave enough, lucky enough, all these things to to succeed and and hopefully survive um it it can be a really profound experience and and walking to the base of the route you know in in the moonlight and just you and your buddy i'm usually a real chatty guy in real life but but when i get scared walking to the base of a route oftentimes you know me and my partner aren't really saying anything Mm -hmm. you're you're kind of alone with your thoughts you get to the base of the route Oh, you know, you flake out the robes, you tie in. I usually like to go first on Alpine route. Um, not, not because of any reason other than that, that I'm scared. And I know that the sooner I start climbing, mm-hmm. the sooner my, my mind will quiet because it has to. And then it's, it's kind of like when the bell rings, you're like, all right, here we go. Yeah. Very neat. So you started, uh, climbing. And soon after, I believe you got this nickname, Sketchy Kelly, which I wanted to yes. talk about. Um, yes. Can you just tell, I, I read a little bit about it. Can sure. you just tell the listeners a little bit about Ske- Sketchy Kelly? <laughs> For sure. Okay. Uh, in, in Missoula, when I got turned on to climbing, I I was so into it. I was completely obsessed. It it was amazing. It, this freedom and of climbing in the mountains and all the all the components physical psychological strategic technical it was all so appealing to me i was so in love with it that uh that's all i wanted to do was just go climbing all the time and in boxing and in other things i had done some some running like marathon running and things like that that i had done you know training really hard and and being uh kind of with it psychologically like mental intensity all those things and just being determined and tough those things would would go a long ways and they could sometimes compensate for uh your technique or your skill not being right. the best and, and that holds true in a lot of things in life you know determination and being intense and being tough and that helps in climbing too for sure but but in climbing you need to have some basic skills man you know you need to learn how you, you need to know how to build anchors and place pro and at first i didn't have any of that i mean i had a a very very basic semblance of how to do things at a, a low level modicum of competency and i and that was good enough for me so i thought so i was just going for it all the time and like taking whippers and not knowing how to build anchors correctly and all you know that there were so many cases where i probably should have died in the first couple of years of climbing um and it was really just because i was i was way too excited about it i just loved it so much that i figured all those other things well they they could wait and i'm just gonna go for it and it'll all work out fine um the problem is in climbing that can get you killed uh, you know, in boxing, it might get you knocked out. In 
or, or you lose the match in in running or whatever, you know, so you're not going to do so well in the race. I mean, alpine climbing has real consequences. Um, and so, and, and all kinds of climbing. I was really into ice climbing at first. Um, and so anyway, people started calling me Sketchy Kelly around Missoula. Unbeknownst to me, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, like a joking thing. I mean, nowadays, some of my buddies call me that and I, I think, I hope they're joking because <laughs> um, it's been like 22 years or something and knock on wood, I'm still around. Right. I think I've, I think I've gained uh, <laughs> some skills and some judgment over the, some hard won skills and judgment. But uh, yeah, people were like, apparently around Missoula, people were like, man, that sketchy Kelly guy, he's always looking for climbing partners, <laughs> which by the way, is sometimes not always, but can sometimes be a bad sign if someone like no one will climb with the same person twice in a row. And so they're always looking for climbing partners. You know, that's maybe not such a good sign. And that was totally me. Uh, yeah, people were like, that guy's always looking for people to climb with. Don't climb with him. He's bad news. And I totally was. I wouldn't have gone climbing with me either. I mean, I, I was, I was a complete idiot, but, um, somehow I, survived some of those um experiences and which i guess kind of leads to an interesting thing which is that um when you get into sketchy or bad situations if you have you know the i guess some of it is is a kind of mental discipline and mental toughness which i had developed a lot of through boxing Hmm. um if you've got that, and certainly in the mountains and with climbing, luck plays a role. I, I don't, I don't discount that. I'm not trying to say that, you know, I survive difficult situations because I somehow mm-hmm. have the magic formula to surviving. No way, man. I got super lucky a bunch of times. But, but sort of the irony is that you develop this skill set of being able to kind of deal with, deal with stuff when shit hits the fan man and like the more you learn that the better able you are to survive other situations and so then you kind of develop a confidence of like nah I know how to I know how to deal with things if we if we get stuck you know in a storm or off route in the dark or whatever and so you so you're able to push the envelope a little further and you have the skills to survive it but but there are so many unknowns that you it's really a bad deal if you start relying on that too much right right well so i I think you mentioned in your one of your alpinist articles Mm -hmm. on sketchy kelly is this big fall that you took and all right you you credit that (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and and afterward, the park ranger tells yeah. you, well, a lot of people would have just died there. You know, yep. you just stay there and die. They would just give up. Give up. And, yeah. That was such a profound moment. Um, that that encounter probably um, shaped me in some ways that I didn't realize at the time. And I wouldn't realize until years mm-hmm. later. I remember the next day down in the meadow talking to this grizzled old ranger who had probably done a million rescues and you know a million body recoveries and you know he'd seen people like me come and go you know and uh and he's talking to me and i'm standing there by my like 400 hundred dollar beat up car and i had these crutches that i had gotten at a second hand store someone drove me into town in in uh jackson and i you know i'm just like a train wreck i'm just this beat up scruffy 
climber dude. And, uh, I'm talking to the ranger and he, he heard about it and that, and I, I was like, yeah, man, I, I guess I, you know, I'm feeling kind of sheepish and I kind of like shrug my shoulders and I'm like, yeah, I, I guess I got pretty lucky. And, uh, that's where he, he said something like, uh, you know, his, his like voice kind of rose and he's like, it wasn't just luck. And, uh, I remember it so well as this old guy and he's like, it wasn't just luck. You're still here because you didn't give up because you didn't quit a lot of people in situations like that they just roll over and die i remember he said he said something like they roll over like a cow they just give up and die but but look at your hands you know my hands were just scraped raw from scratching and clawing and and he's like that was part of the reason i was there anyway i don't think it was all of it i mean i'm sure i got lucky too and he just like stared at me for a minute I don't think he said anything else, and he just like turned and walked away. To hear that whole story of Sketchy Kelly's near-death experience, subscribe to our Play Director package. You can do that on the support page on our website. You'll get access to that story. You'll also hear extra thoughts from other Meisters that we've hosted in the past, and you're able to ask your own questions to the Meisters. Get your questions answered on our Play Director package. There's also some other fun things on there if you'd like to help keep this podcast running. You're listening to Mountain Meister. This is our interview with Kelly Cordes. So, so you definitely got lucky. Um, yeah, for sure. And like you, you are admitting this that this kind of story isn't really glamorous, no. right? And no. like you shouldn't be proud of what happened. No. Yet, for some reason, and I, I haven't been able to identify why, this kind of survival story. Uh, it's very popular and it is glamorized in this adventure community. Right. Why? Like, it, yeah. it really shouldn't be. Right, right. It's not good. Yeah, you didn't make very no. good decisions. No, I made some really bad decisions yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know why it's glamorized. Maybe because, maybe in part because humans love a good story. I mean, yeah. s- since the time we were drawing on caves you know, people are telling stories and, uh, and I think, I think maybe, maybe with stories like this, that there is, there are elements to it that we as humans kind of like to celebrate, which is like, uh, the thing of not giving up, not quitting. Um, you know, that there are, I would say it in, in my own defense, as much as I'm number one in line of criticizing myself in that scenario that there that ranger dude was was right to a degree that there were things in that in that story and in some other situations i've been in where that sort of um kind of discipline and struggle and Mm -hmm. uh desire to live uh they are valuable things um and I also made some really bad decisions that got me into that situation. So I would say it's a, it's a, and mm-hmm. not a, but, you know, it's not an either or thing. They both exist. I made some really bad decisions. Um, as I think any human being makes yes. in their life, of course. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I made some really bad decisions and, um, I, I was also fortunate enough to get out of it. Yeah. And, that and those some of those experiences have also benefited me probably in in uh ways that are hard to describe or hard to 
you know, pinpoint or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I guess both of them exist, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's not a good thing to do to make stupid decisions, but, uh, if you're human and you make stupid decisions, you also need to sometimes figure out kind of how to get out of it. Yeah. And some, sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. Once again, the last thing I want to do is, you know, set it up in some sort of glamorous way or, or whatever, because far better climbers and far braver people than me have not survived situations. Um, there's a huge element of luck, uh, but yeah, I don't know, man. It's kind of interesting. It is. It's, kind of, it's so, really interesting. I you listened to Roman Dial's interview. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just wanted great. to highlight some things from that because you had an interesting perspective for the listeners. We talked to Roman uh, a few episodes ago. I think it was episode one thirty six, and Roman had an interesting perspective. Even even though he does some pretty intense adventuring himself he kind of implied that there was a line and you really, no matter how much you love mm. something, is it, does it justify to take a substantial risk? How's that sound? Right. Yeah. Do, what do you think about that, Kelly? Does like mm-hmm. you, you love alpinism and it is so dangerous. Does, yes. does loving it give you enough of a reason to, to take that risk? I, I, for me, I think it is, uh, I, th- I think I, I can justify it. And and I think that kind of points to the, the theory that it's, a, it's extremely personal. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, I you know, think it's kind of okay if I want to take these risks because, um, well, for one, I don't have kids. I don't have anyone depending on me. I think that changes the formula enormously. The people who love me and who I'm in relationships with, they're, they're consenting adults. They, My girlfriend doesn't... I, I do feel a responsibility to her and to my sister, to my family. I do feel a responsibility there. I feel a responsibility to myself also. Um, all that said, you know, they, they don't have to have to be with me. They don't have to be my friends. They don't have to love me. They could, they could, they could say that it's not, it's not worth it, dude. I think you're a train wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that would be understandable. I, I also, I also do agree that that there's probably a responsibility to the people who care about us. However, I don't think that's such an easily definable thing as so many people seem to make it out to be. I mean, where in the hell do you draw those lines, man? Like, like, well, the, <laughs> the de facto answer is everyone seems to draw the line uh, right where they are. As I sometimes say, everyone wants to draw the circle around themselves. Mm-hmm. That the person who, who accepts less risk than me, well, they're probably not living fully. And the person who engages more risk than me well they're a maniac and that's irresponsible everybody justifies their own deal that's the crazy thing man i hear climbers so so i'm not a base jumper or wingsuit person i i think it looks awesome i mean i think it looks amazing um i don't do it i don't have any plans to do it uh but climbers and everybody else thinks those people are maniacs it's crazy to me to hear climbers label base jumpers as maniacs or say that they're insane or say that it's a crapshoot. 
what bullshit, man. I mean, everybody says that about us too. Mm-hmm. And then we – and the, the defense always starts with these two words, yeah, but. <laughs> they, it goes, yeah, but. With climbing, we have ropes, and the ropes are stretching, and all these things. I, I've made, I, I've, I've done the yeah, but defense a, a million times, and I totally believe it. Um, hikers think we're crazy, and then city people think anybody going hiking alone is uh-huh. crazy. I mean, I mean, it, it's indisputable that it happens at every level. And I guess my point is is not necessarily to to say defend wingsuit flying or or whatever but but my my point is that I think we kind of need to look at it a little bit differently I mean how can we realistically draw a line and say that this is acceptable and this isn't I just mm-hmm. I think it's so danged individual that that it that it really is kind of a fool's game to try to come up with some formula. I mean, because if we're gonna if we're gonna start drawing lines, what's that gonna be based on? Just our whimsical opinion, like you know, which is always uneducated. I mean, hikers who say climbers are maniacs, they're completely uneducated. I I, I have friends who are base jumpers and I've kind of read up on it. I'm kind of a a, a fanboy of of that sort of stuff cuz I think an it's... armchair wingsuit flyer. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what, dude? I am an armchair wingsuit flyer. <laughs> I totally am. And uh so I've read up and talked to some friends who do it and stuff and it is not a crapshoot. I mean, it's it's highly dangerous. One mistake and and, right. and you bite it, which actually is kind of like driving on a two-lane highway, head on into traffic. One mistake, you cross the center line, boom, you're done. But, uh, but anyway... But um, it's more likely in that. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, but, but it's kind of interesting when we think about risk um, and, and how, how we accept certain types of risks and say others are unacceptable. But it is not a crapshoot. There's an awful lot of things, an awful lot of precision and a lot of decision-making that goes into it. There, it's very, very, very dangerous. I'm not trying to say it isn't, but but I know enough about it to know that it's not Russian roulette. It's not putting a, it's not literally putting a bullet in the chamber and spinning it. it climbing isn't either. Um, I think uh, so. I think if we're gonna like try to draw some line, it needs to be based on some sort of what what some sort of data. I guess so. Some right. sort of formula and. and and if we're going to start to do that, do we really want to live our lives that way? I think if we do that, then then without question, life ceases to be art, and, and isn't hmm. isn't part of the idea of life to to have it open enough that we're not living in a formulaic way? Is there anything greater than than living life as art? I, I would say there's not, and I don't think so. I don't. I don't think there's any higher expression than than perhaps living life as art. And I don't think that there's a way we can draw those lines. I think it's extremely individual. And I think it's great that we have these discussions. I think they're they're illuminating and they're fascinating. But but where I get annoyed with people is when they profess to have the answers. Who has the answer to life? That's yeah. cool. That's very I poetic. I like that. Um, I have a few comments from me. First of all, yeah. it's, it's just so easy to be judgmental. Um, that's like our first inkling is to try to judge other people's 
um, tolerances of risk or whatever. And, you know, we're only one, like we only live one life, I guess. So like, how are you supposed to know what the other person's is? Another, another thought that comes to my mind when I hear you talk about this is that like, I, I feel so fortunate that I don't have, that I don't get pleasure out of doing some of these high risk or what seems like high risk activities to me. Yeah. I feel really fortunate about that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, uh, I think that's just me, you know, like I don't really seek uh, adrenaline Mm -hmm. in that form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it comes in so many different forms, right? I mean, like, like, like their, their adventure, adventure is this amazingly broad thing. I think a, a lot of climbers, and in the past, I, I'm absolutely guilty. I think we've made the mistake of saying that adventure is kind of only the way we do it. It, it kind of relates right. to that drawing the circle around ourselves thing. Who's to say that there's not adventure in mastering a piano routine for mm-hmm. a for for a pianist or or a scientist working on a, a physics problem right. or I mean, that's amazing. And, and you love tennis. That's freaking rad. Mm. That's awesome. Like who can draw lines around passion? Right. You know? Yeah. Another thing on the data, uh, something that came to my mind was I listened to this podcast called Freakonomics. Yes. Um, and me too. Okay, cool. So, uh, Levitt, Stephen Levitt, one of the, yep. the co-hosts did a study around, um, childhood deaths this is kind of uh Mm -hmm. morbid but uh (laughs) just on like not knowing certain things and we're kind of unknowledgeable we hear a lot about you know having guns in the house and they found that the data shows that your child is like a hundred times more likely to have a childhood death if you have a swimming pool over a gun in the house Wow. So I think that I think that that just I don't know data. The thing that I really like yeah. about data is that it's unemotional. Yes. And I think that we as humans are very emotional, and that affects yeah. our decision making. Yeah. So when you're able to find clean data, and I'm obviously not saying anything about any political opinions about guns. I just think it's interesting right. that there's a it stigma is. around certain things. Boy, that that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I I, w- I wouldn't have guessed that as you right. were as you were speaking. You know, my mind had jumped ahead to say like. Oh yeah, having a gun in the house is way more dangerous. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, d- data can be can be wonderful, and I think data can allow us to to make more informed decisions. But yes. um, but I, I totally agree with you how it can't control it. it kind of limits yeah. creativity, or it could. Yes, yes, or it could, and, yeah. and I guess that's one of the things that bothers me about some of the the people, even with within our outdoor community, and most certainly in the kind of greater world at large who views us as maniacs. And, Mm -hmm. and it's why I really dislike those who, who denigrate say Dean Potter, um, you know, cause that that is obviously his death was a recent thing that Mm -hmm. attracted a lot of attention. And, And I'm not defending it out of like any personal reasons. I mean, you know, I wasn't friends with Dean, but I greatly admired his sense of adventure and, and honestly, I think it's complete bullshit that some of us climbers will sit here and say that that he was irresponsible or that he you know he he shouldn't have done that. I, I mean that, that that's just ludicrous to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. 
Um, one final comment on the circle that you talked about. I like yeah. that analogy. Um, it's just that we as humans are really overly optimistic at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you ask somebody or you ask a group of people, are you a better than average driver? Um, uh, like 80, 80%, <laughs> I forget, but the vast majority yeah. of people say they're better than average. When, yes. When, you know, <laughs> no, they're not. Right, you have to 50%. Uh, another one, like entrepreneurs, you ask them what their likelihood of success is, and they know that like nine out of 10 fail, yet right. they think that they're an exception. I'm, people buy lottery tickets for Christ's right. sakes. Yeah, I'm the exception somehow. Right? <laughs> yes, and I yes. I think that sometimes even I mean it's just yeah. it's human, you know. Well, it keeps us going, right? right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, cool. It won't happen to me. Yeah, but, it won't happen but, to me. But, but but that that I I don't know. You could we could go on forever about this uh, as you're painfully aware at this point. I can ramble, <laughs> but uh, but like I mean that's probably that that kind of. Uh, Optimism, which, by the way, a- another term that sometimes my climate buddies and I have used, or, or I guess that I've, I think I kind of came up with it at one point when we were going up to on this thing in Pakistan, Great Chango Tower. I was talking about how how we were like infused with delusional optimism, mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and it is that delusional optimism that it's probably important for for any sort of advancement disclaimer is I'm not claiming that climbing is some great advancement, but that optimism you spoke of, it it probably, you know, every scientist who comes up with some great discovery, he, he or she had to have that. I mean, right. yes. we, we probably have to have that for anything mm-hmm. to go well. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, I, w- I just want to touch on uh, your book, the, the Tower Climbing, or sorry, A Chronicle of Climbing and Controversy on Serotory. Um, yes. I thought I listened to a few clips on it. Haven't read it. Um, just wanted you to talk a little bit about it. And I think there's there's a big human uh, component to this guy uh, Maestri. Is that yeah, saying that? Ch- Cesare Maestri. Maestri. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The, the the nutshell version is that in 1959 he claimed to make the first descent of Cerro Torre, which at the time had thought to be impossible which only made all the world's top alpinists want to try it. Um, his partner, Tony Eger, died on the trip. Maestri came back claiming success would have been the greatest ascent in history. Many people called it such. Over the ensuing decades, it, it's become apparent, uh, at least for anybody who critically looks at data and evidence and, mm-hmm. and all kinds of things, uh, that there's no way it didn't happen. He, he got about one fourth of the way up. It was his high point. Um, but then it's interesting how that, uh, that kind of origin story had such an influence on this mountain and he mm-hmm. was outraged by the, his quote unquote detractors. And so he returned to territory with a gas powered air compressor mm-hmm. and jackhammered in some 400, bolts space to be used as ladders to try to get up territory. I mean, make sense of that. Like, wow, it's just like bizarro stuff. And then all these things happen. And then some guys removed the bolts a couple of years ago. And then that blew up into a big controversy. It's kind of this microcosm of, uh, of the world at large in terms of human drama and belief Hmm. and passion and all these characteristics of the human condition played out on a mountain but um, that sounds nice. cool. That sounds really neat. <laughs> yeah, it. it uh, I think it is. Uh, it was desperate to try to pull all those components 
into a, a cohesive narrative, though, like okay. writing the book. Oh my god! I mean, and that what I mentioned there is just the like total, total snapshot to every single like word that I spoke right there. That you, you dig underneath that, and there's like, well, yeah, but <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah but, but this. Yeah. yeah, but that. And then this ties into that. Wait, how? Oh no, it does because of this and this and this, and then it traces back to this and jumps forward to that, and it's it's like a spaghetti kitchen, man. But uh. It's stuff going everywhere, <laughs> and but it all relates in a in that weird sort of way, and it's really so many levels. That's so very, many levels. very yeah. human. Sounds cool. Not definitely more to it than the climbing, which is right up my alley. So, oh yeah, very neat. yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. We'll put a link to that on your Meister cool. profile page, Kelly. Excellent. And we're gonna wrap it up with just a much more meaningful topic and that <laughs> and that is your margarita recipe <laughs> yes yes absolutely can you it's not a secret right oh no it's not uh, a secret okay. hey i'm all about making the world a better place right right through margaritas <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. okay so quickly give us your margarita recipe and then we'll, we'll chat some more all right so my my favorite recipe is uh you, you fresh squeeze some limes and you put a little bit of agave nectar in there to give a little bit of sweetener to it. Add a splash of citrus orange juice if you're oh. using reposado tequila or lemon juice if you're using plata or silver. And uh, I'm, I usually make the mix about f- – that's about 50% of the drink. The other 50% is booze, nice. the good part. <laughs> and, and of that other 50%, two-thirds to three-quarters is tequila. And you have – no matter how cheap you go, you never drop below 100% agave tequila. You, you can't do that Cuervo gold stuff, you know, where it says like – you got to watch out because they're tricky bastards on the labels. <laughs> They'll say things like made with real agave. It's like, no, no, no. It, that, that's just, that means it's like 51% agave, which is where – actual tequila comes from the agave plant and like 49% paint thinner, you know, like no, you, you got to go with the one that says it all, all real, uh, all of the real tequilas will say 100% agave. Okay. We'll say that on the bottle. So no matter how cheap you go, you got to have some standards somewhere in life, Ben. I mean, come on, man. You know, as a go for the hundred percent agave tequila, I think a good baseline is a, uh, Hornitos. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Salsa, yeah. And then my favorite tequila is probably Herradura Reposado, but but you kind of don't, I don't know, it makes a damn good margarita, but uh, it's probably better served for sipping. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a little bit like, I don't know, sometimes making a, I'm getting sidetracked already. Oh, but this is fine. This is fun. And I assume this is your gear recommendation too. This yeah, yeah. No, this, oh, totally, <laughs> yeah. And, and I would say the, the gear recommendation, if we want to get that out of the way, I would say Herradura Reposado uh-huh. uh, to be very specific. But, um, you know, yeah, really good tequila. Using that for margarita is kind of a perplexing deal because it makes a damn good margarita. However... It's a little bit like taking a single malt scotch and like mixing it with Coke, Coca Cola. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you don't make a Jack and Coke out of like single malt scotch or something. You know, Um, so yeah. Anyway, um, that sidetrack aside, uh, your fifty percent of your margarita that is booze is like I usually do two two thirds to three quarters of it tequila, and then you know a third to a quarter I do like a liqueur. Mm Sometimes I'll do like a cheap triple sec, which is maybe sacrilege, 
but then the the better one is a Cointreau. Yeah, Cointreau. That's terrific liqueur, and yet you put a healthy splash of Cointreau in there. So to review, you've got fifty percent mix, which is fresh squeezed limes, a little bit of citrus, and a little bit of agave nectar to to take the edge off a little bit. And then you got your booze, which is mostly tequila and a little bit of Cointreau. And the tequila has to be 100% agave. Excellent. For the listeners, that's on Kelly's Meister profile page too. <laughs> our website, mtnmeister.com. And I'll throw in a plug too to my sister's cocktail blog. I sent you a yes. link. It's legit, she, man. She's good, right? Yeah, she is. She's legit. Yeah. Yep. So for the listeners, if you need to mix up some drinks, check out <laughs> drinksonme.nyc. Laura also designs our website. She's just an extraordinarily talented person. Cool. Finally, Kelly, who yes, do you want to hear as the next Mountain Meister? I would love to hear Kyle Dempster. He's a friend of mine, and uh, I have so much respect and admiration for Kyle. He's... It, totally a next generation climber but but more so an adventurer um these days it can be easy to think that that true wild adventure is dead and blah 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 which i disagree with but uh there's no question that kyle is a real deal adventure very similar to someone like mike lebecki i mean he's like a kyle dempster's like a a modern day shipton tillman hmm. in my opinion for the listeners, keep an ear out for Kyle Dempster on a future episode. You can find out more about Kelly at kellycordes, C-O-R-D-E-S dot com. Also highlights from today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. Thanks so much, Kelly. This was awesome. Thank you, Ben. And uh, keep up the good work, man. I love the podcast. There it is, Meister fans. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Kelly Cordes. That was a recommendation from one of you guys, so thank you for submitting a guest request. Thanks, Kelly, for joining. Super, super interesting conversation. Uh, Also, the book sounds interesting. If you want to get your hands wet with that, find the link on Kelly's Meister profile page. Uh, We also have some extra conversation about it in our Play Director package. You can subscribe to that on the support page on our website. Uh, Also, we'll have a comment section on Kelly's Meister profile page. So if you have any thoughts on today's episode, go ahead and put them in the comment section. Also have a link to Kelly's margarita recipe and my sister Lara's cocktail blog, drinksonme.nyc. All right. That's it for this week's episode of Mountain Meister. Hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen. Stay delusionally optimistic, or how about responsibly delusionally optimistic? How's that sound? Until next time, Meister fans, I'm the host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening. <laughs>